Corner Fringe Ministries presents a 12-part series on the divine nature of God. Please enjoy the study. We are in part three of our study of the divine nature of God, and today we're going to continue to compile evidence from the Bible, compelling evidence that does in fact prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Yeshua is more than a man, that he is in fact deity. Now last week we ended in the middle of John's prologue, a prologue which we found to be an actual commentary on the creation account on Genesis chapter 1. And right off the bat, we found that John starts off his gospel quite strategically, with great purpose and intent to reveal to his audience the divine nature of our Lord Yeshua, who John identifies as the Logos, or the Word. And just to recap that opening, going back to John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, Again, reiterating, go all the way back to the beginning, the Word already was. And the Word was with God, prostan theon, face to face with God. And if that weren't enough, then you get this massive cannonball to go through the bow of the theology of the Unitarians, if you will, and sink that ship, because then he says, and the Word was God. That's exactly how it reads in the Greek. So John, at the very beginning of his prologue, what he's doing here is he's revealing to us some very mystical, deeply mysterious spiritual concepts of this logos, of this word. And just in case you were questioning the role or the significance of this logos, John continues to make the following statement by stating in verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Last week we talked about this is what makes God God. The fact that he created heaven and earth, that's what makes all of us subservient to him. He created us. He is the potter and we are the clay. Now, this concept of the word literally being the instrument of creation, this is not something new. This wasn't some news flash to any of the Jewish people living in the first century at the time. This is consistent with Scripture. We go to Psalms 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. This is consistent throughout Scripture. So what John is doing here at the beginning of his prologue, he's merely bringing to light a deeper revelation of the word. He's bringing to light its relationship to God. He's bringing to light the relationship Yeshua has with his Father. Is this lofty? Is this mysterious and mystical? Of course it is. But could we expect anything less from a God whose wisdom cannot be found? It knows no end. I think it's important that you know that what John has done here at the introduction of his gospel the way he's actually describing this word, his description wasn't something that was foreign to the Jewish people of his day. Actually, interestingly enough, we find the exact same type of imagery that John is using in his prologue being used in the Targums. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Targums, the Targums are in fact the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible. So they take it from the Hebrew, they bring it to Aramaic, and you have these targums, and they are the translations or paraphrases. Understand this, 
These targums were read in the synagogues. Many of the Jews at the time spoke Aramaic as their primary language. Hebrew, scholars across the board, there's so much scholarship to back this up, scholars will tell you that Hebrew was spoken more of as a formal language at the time, whereas Aramaic was the primary language. All right? And these targums, they're really quite something because what they do is they give you a rare glimpse into the minds of the scribes, the rabbis, the teachers of the day because they translated the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. So what you get to see is this behind the veil, a VIP, if you will, room of how they thought, how they understood the Hebrew Bible. This is amazing. These things are very amazing. So we get this rare glimpse at how they understood Scripture. And amazingly enough, these Targums, they reveal to us the exact same type of mystical translations or revelation that John has presented in his prologue regarding the Logos, or the Word. Now, before I show you these things, first thing I want to state that in Aramaic, the term used for word is memra. The term in Greek is logos. The term in Hebrew is devar. All of these things, devar, logos, memra, they all mean the exact same thing. They mean word. All right? Now I'm going to give you some examples from the Targums and the way they translated from the Hebrew Bible. And this comes courtesy, of, again, of Dr. Brown, Ph.D. in Near Eastern Languages, who has translated these things. In Genesis 1.27, it reads in the Hebrew, God created man. If you go to the Targums, how they translated this in the Targums, again, read in the synagogues, it reads, the word of the Lord created man. The memra of the Lord created man. This is amazing. It's kind of, in a way, getting anthropomorphic here. It's, this word is taking on shape. It's more than just a vapor or breath. And you need to understand that the Jewish people were onto something. They saw the word of God being more than just vapor. Going to Genesis 9.12, in the Hebrew it reads, And God said, This is the sign that I will set for the covenant between me and you. Here you had God speaking directly to Noah and his sons in this passage, talking about that covenant of the rainbow. The Targums, listen to how they record it. And the Lord said, this is the sign that I will set for the covenant between my memra and you, my word and you. The word is taking on shape here as a person, if you will, not just breath or wind. Going to the Ten Commandments, they begin with these words, Exodus 20, verse 1. The Lord spoke all these words. The Targum records it this way. And the word of the Lord spoke all these words. That is amazing. When you see that, this is, you're getting a glimpse into the mind of these Jewish people. And this is what they would have heard in the Aramaic. This is what they would have heard in the synagogues. The word of the Lord spoke all these words. Now, if the word wasn't an actual being, if you will, a person, this would make absolutely no sense. The point is, is they understood it more loftily than our Unitarian friends today do. Numbers 10.35, when the ark would go out, it said, uh, Moses would say, Rise up, O Lord. Listen to how it is in the Aramaic. Rise up, O word of the Lord. O Memra, rise up. Deuteronomy 130, 
The Lord your God who goes before you, he himself will fight for you. Targum, the Lord your God who leads before you, his memra will fight for you. His word will fight for you. That is amazing. Next one I want to show you is out of Deuteronomy 18. Keep in mind, this passage is about the prophet like unto Moses. The Lord is speaking to Moses and said, I will rise up a prophet like you among your brethren. And him you shall hear. And if you don't hear him, I will call you into account. In other words, you're going to be destroyed if you don't listen to this prophet like unto Moses. We know, after reading the New Testament, that Yeshua is the prophet like unto Moses. Right? Deuteronomy 18, 19 records in the Hebrew, I myself will require it of him. In other words, if you don't listen to this prophet, I myself will require it of him. But the Targums record it this way, my word will require it of him. My memra. Deuteronomy 31.3 The Lord your God will pass before you. Targum, the Lord your God, his word will pass before you. Isaiah 45.17 Israel will be saved by the Lord. Targum, Israel will be saved by the word of the Lord. Interestingly enough, this word is taken on the component of what? Redemption and salvation. Redemption and salvation. I'm going to share one more with you. I, I saved the best for last. Genesis 28 records in the Hebrew, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on his journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then Yahweh will be my Elohim. Then the Lord will be my God. The Targums? then the word of the Lord will be my God. The memra of the Lord will be my God. What an amazing statement. And is, does this sound familiar? It should, because what did John say in this first part of his prologue? And the word was God. Understand this concept that the memra, the word, the logos, devar, it was not foreign. This lofty concept was not foreign to the Jewish minds of Yeshua's day. Despite what some Unitarians will espouse to you. Let me further prove the point. If we go to the time of Yeshua, when Yeshua walked the face of the earth, we find that there was a Jewish philosopher that existed at the time of Yeshua. His name is Philo. He's often referred to as Philo the Jew or Philo of Alexandria. But what Philo did is he provided a lot of very deep commentary on the Hebrew Bible. Very deep commentary. In fact, if you read the works of Philo, at times it can almost be like reading the book of Enoch, or like Revelation. Very intense. Because he was driven to finding the deeper meanings of the Word, of Scripture. And he believed that if you actually read the Bible hyper-literally, that you would end up falling completely short of what the Lord was trying to convey to us. Because God simply is too complex to be understood in a hyper-literal form or at a, a face value, if you will, when you read the Word of God. Now, what's interesting about Philo is that he's often found in his writings using this word, which is logos. He's actually found using it more than 1,300 times in his writings. 
But what is even more interesting than that is that Philo is found using logos in the exact same context that we find John using logos in his prologue. To the point where Philo, monotheistic Jew, actually identifies the logos as God's firstborn. And going, pushing the envelope even further, Philo goes as far as to say the logos is a second deity. I want to show this to you. But before I show it to you, I, I want to show you the verse Philo is commenting on. He's commenting on Genesis 9-6, which reads, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Two things. Number one, this statement is made to Noah and his sons. Secondly, and most importantly, this is in the first person, Yahweh, speaking to Noah and his sons. He's been in the first person since Genesis 9-1. This whole passage, the Lord is speaking in the first person. And I'm going to show you what Philo does, because Philo is very astute, and he catches something that most of us would not catch when reading this text. Here's what he says about this verse. Why is it that he, meaning God, speaks as if some other God, saying that he made man after the image of God, and not that he made him after his own image? Do you see what Philo just caught? This is amazing. If you read Genesis 9 and 6, you read the beginning, go to back to Genesis 9, 1, all the way through 6, we discover it's in the first person. But listen to how the words, in this, and Philo catches this. We'll read to Genesis 9, 6 again. The Lord, first person. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made them. Philo caught on to something. Wait a second, something doesn't add up here. Yahweh has been speaking in the first person, and yet now is speaking almost of some other God. Because if he would have continued in the first person, he would have said, for in my image, I made them. But now he moves to this third person. He moves back to the third person. This is how Philo deals with this. Very appropriately and without any falsehood was this oracular sentence uttered by God for no mortal thing could have been formed on the similitude of the supreme father of the universe but only after the pattern of the second deity who is the word of the supreme being. What an amazing statement. Reading this commentary, we see Philo looking at Genesis 9-6. He's confronted with something. He's confronted with something extremely majestic. In his commentary, it's almost like he doesn't know how to handle it. He, he, he's, it's almost to the point where we, we're actually seeing Philo. He's wrestling with this passage, and, and he's not quite sure how to reconcile it. It's a deeply spiritual context. It's, it's deep. And therefore, he's like backed in a corner and he has to identify it. A monotheistic Jew, the word, the logos, as a second God. The point that I'm trying to make here is that even Jews in the first century, they were wrestling with the divine nature of God. How to describe them? This word obviously takes on more shape than just vapor or breath. I want to give you another example of Philo's writings because they pertain to our subject matter where we are going to find that he is showing us some very mystical concepts, concepts that actually parallel 
The very things that are spoken in our New Covenant Scriptures. And we're going to, again, we'll go back. This is from the works of Philo. He says, For God gives to the soul a seal. God gives to the soul a seal. I, I want to stop here because I want you to understand Philo is using imagery. Imagery that is not foreign to the New Testament. In fact, when we go to the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul using this imagery of the seal quite often. I didn't put this up here, but let, let me read to you a few examples of the Apostle Paul using this very imagery because this is going to set the stage. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you in Messiah and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul likens the seal of God to that of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. You understand? Let me go to Ephesians, show you another one. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption and the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Again, the imagery of the seal is being likened to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. I'll just give you one more. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That is Ephesians 4.30. All right. So we see this imagery is utilized quite a bit in the New Testament. Now with that said, let's continue on in Philo's commentary. He says, For God gives to the soul a seal, a very beautiful gift to show that he is invested with shape, the essence of all things, which was previously devoid of shape and has stamped, marked, with a particular character, that which previously had no character and has endowed with form that which had previously no distinctive form. And having perfected um, this the entire world, he has impressed upon it an image and an appearance, namely his own logos, his own word. This is fascinating. When you consider that Paul is calling the Spirit of God a seal, the seal, the Spirit of God, and here Philo is identifying the seal, the logos, or the, the seal as the logos. Are you seeing these connections? This is amazing. Again, Philo was on to something. Now, let me take you back to John, because John is going to articulate in great detail, this mysterious concept for us of the word and the seal. And he is going to bring a complete revelation, as it were, of the Godhead for us, where we literally see the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh all working together in absolute unity. Perfect unison. John fourteen fifteen is where we're going to begin. Now, before we read, you know, it is so important that you identify the characters that are going to be introduced in this passage. And you need to keep an eye on who is speaking. The words that are coming forth are from Yeshua's mouth. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father. Okay, so the two characters we already have, we have Yeshua in view, and we have the Father. 
And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Well, who is this helper? Verse 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I, Yeshua speaking, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. It's so important that you understand. Yeshua speaking in the first person, stating, I will not leave you orphans, and I will come to you. Dropping down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Dropping down, Judas, not the Iscariot, said to him, Lord, uh, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? If any doubt or question, I want to put it to rest in regard to who's speaking. It's Yeshua speaking here. And the question and the response that Judas understood that Yeshua was speaking of himself when he says, I will manifest myself to you. So we ask the question, how are you going to manifest yourself, Yeshua? How are you going to do it? Verse 23, Yeshua answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Pluralis majestatus. Plurals of majesty, the very thing we read about last week in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. How amazing is this? You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit literally working together, not as three gods. There is no such thing as three gods. One God, Echad. They are one. Yeshua is so fascinating. He says, I will manifest myself to you. How does he manifest himself to us? The Holy Spirit. So now you're telling me, and then it goes farther than that, because he says, we, the Father in I, will come to you and make our home with you. In other words, now you're telling me that the Spirit of God is who? Yeshua and the Father. This is deep. It doesn't get deeper. What an amazing commentary on the Godhead. You know, you want a clear revelation of the word, or the seal of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, and, and Yeshua in his relationship with the Father, read the Gospel of John. A monotheistic Jew. The very essence of his Gospel is to reveal the divine nature of God for the express purpose of revealing exactly who Yeshua really is. He is deity. He is the word who was with God, proston theon, and was God. Is this complex? Can this be confusing to some people? Is this spiritually deep? Yes. Yes, it is. I want to get back to John's prologue. Last week, if you remember, we ended in verse 9. We're only halfway through this prologue. And there's a lot of other things that I want to cover in this prologue, so we're going to go back and begin where we left off. Verse 10. He was in the world, still speaking of the Logos, the Word. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. You see that this is the second time that John states that the world was made through the Logos, through the Word. 
If you remember, John said the exact same thing in verse 3, where he says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. It's as though John is trying to do something here. He is attempting to remove any doubt, any uncertainty, ambiguity regarding the Logos' role in creation, which we know only God made the heavens and the earth. Furthermore, it's worth mentioning that John isn't the only one who testified of this. Okay, He's not sitting solo. He's not the only monotheistic Jew that held to this. There's actually many other testimonies found in the New Covenant Scriptures. For example, the writer of the book of Hebrews mentions it multiple times. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. Hebrews 1.1 God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. The writer of Hebrews here has the exact same testimony that John does. All things that were made were made through the word. This was also the testimony of the Apostle Paul. He states in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. He, the Logos, Yeshua, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. goes on in verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. Let me just say this. That means the angels of God in heaven, they were created through Yeshua. All things, whether in heaven, visible or invisible, they were created by him. He goes on to say all things were created through him and for him. I mean, this is the testimony throughout the word, that the Father created all things through the Son. The Father created all things through the Son, as though they're one God. And did you catch this, what Paul does here? The preposition is here. All things were created through him and the preposition for him. He didn't just say, okay, all things were created through him, period. For him. What does this signify? That he would receive glory. This signifies that he's the one to receive glory. Isaiah 45, 18. Remember, we, we talked about this in week one. For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, who created the heavens, who is Elohim, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am Yahweh, there is no other. Ask Isaiah who created the heavens and the earth. Yahweh. Ask all the New Testament monotheistic Jews who created the heavens and the earth. Yeshua. The Father created all things through Yeshua. There's an identification here. And by the time we get done, you are not going to believe it. By the time we get done with the study, you are going to see that Yeshua is identified over and over and over again, yes, as Yahweh. 
you know, it's, it's, it's not peculiar to me when you read, there's a, there's a passage in Proverbs, and I'm going to put it up here. But if we didn't have the information, this passage would be, it would be hard to grapple with. But now that you're starting to see this beautiful revelation, it, it, it's, like, it's like a lily. You know, my lilies are starting to bloom at home. They're beautiful. You know, I love those things. And when a lily, it's closed, you don't get to see inside of all of its beauty. But when it blossoms, you get to see inside all the beauty. And I just, I, I just look at the Creator. That's what it's like when you investigate and you're seeking the divine nature of God on the surface and without Yeshua, you're looking at a closed lily, but through Yeshua, that lily opens up and you get to this deep revelation of who Yahweh is. He's three-dimensional. It's amazing. He's not a one-dimensional character. We can put on a piece of paper and say, that is God, we put him in a box. He's much deeper than that. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind into his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know. What a powerful passage. The New Testament, constantly, over and over, the Father, God, has made all things through the Word, through the Son. That is the testimony. That's the very thing we are reading right here in Proverbs. This is very Jewish. This is a Jewish concept. That the Father through His Son has created all things, and they are one. Getting back to John's prologue in verse 11, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. We'll be getting into that later uh, in the coming weeks. Verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, finally he comes to this. This is the crescendo of his prologue. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory, what kind of glory? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here, John, he reveals that the Logos, the Word, actually became flesh. It dwelt among us. If you look at this Greek word for dwelt, it's skenoo or eskenosin, it literally means to live in a tent. So the Word became flesh and lived in a tent or tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. That is amazing. If you understand anything about the tabernacle as, as, as defined in the Torah, you understand that it all began at Exodus 25.8. Have them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Tavech. That was the purpose of the tabernacle. God wanted to dwell with his people. And the prophet Isaiah, he, he compliments this very thought by stating the following. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Matthew tells us it means God with us. One of the most unique statements made in all of the Hebrew Bible is this name, Emmanuel. God with us. 
Now, John builds upon this theme of the Logos becoming flesh as he continues in his gospel. I want to show you some very interesting statements made by Yeshua himself, his own testimony. Statements that were made for the express purpose to convey to, uh, to his children, to his audience, who he really was. John 5.39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The scriptures are called the word of God. You got to see how beautiful this. And the word became flesh. And that was Yeshua's testimony. Listen, I am the word of God. You search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life? He doesn't correct them that they're wrong. In the scriptures, it is eternal life. Read Proverbs 3. But Yeshua is saying, I am those scriptures. I am the word. Paul talks about in Romans 3, but now the, the righteousness of God apart from the law has been revealed. Meaning, apart from the law, now it's been taken off of paper and it's been manifest in the flesh, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Yeshua makes another statement just a couple verses later in verse 46. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, the Torah, which the first five books of the Bible, they're attributed to Moses. So he's saying, if you believe Moses, if you believe the law, the Torah, you would believe me. Because it's about me. Yeshua is saying, those words are about me. He is the word made flesh. So let's go back to John's prologue. We're almost done. Verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. This is uh, uh, John the Baptist speaking of. For he was before me. Okay, talking about, uh, you know, one of the things, I'll just stop real quick. We won't talk about it today, but one of the things uh, that the Unitarians cling on to is that Yeshua never preexisted. I mean, that, uh, there's so much scripture to, to debate that, and I know that. But just so you know, they don't believe he preexisted. And yet John the Baptist's own testimony is that he was before me. That's his, that was his testimony. And he was the one to bear witness of the light. Verse 16. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua HaMashiach. The last verse in the prologue. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. There's a lot in this passage that I want to comment on um, that I'm not going to get to today. That, that the first sentence, no one has seen God at any time. If you remember, I posed the argument by the Unitarians that clearly Yeshua could never be God because He was seen, and no one can see God at any time. Therefore, by default, He can't be God. I will be addressing that uh, in the coming weeks, so I don't want you to think that I'm just skipping over that or I forgot. But what I do want to do is I want to comment specifically on the last half of this verse. If you read this verse in the Greek, it reads slightly differently than what we just read. See, the version we just read from is from the New King James. And in fact, every time you see a verse up here, it's always posted from the New King James Version. I rather enjoy the New King James Version. Um, however, it is not perfect. If you're looking for a, the most hyper-literal translation, in my opinion, it is the New American Standard Bible. Okay? 
But I go to the Hebrew and Greek on anything, so it, it doesn't really bother me, and I, and I really like it. But unfortunately, this is not one of its better times of translation that you will find in the New King James. I want to read this verse to you again in the New American Standard. And it says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Or in Greek, exegeted Him. The only begotten God. That reads a lot differently than what we just read. Now, if you have the understanding that the Son is one with His Father, do I think that's a, 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 a totally... Uh, mistranslation? No, because I know the Son is one with the Father. But understand, this is painting a little bit different picture for us, for understanding. If you read it in the Greek, it would literally say, the monogamous theos, meaning the only begotten or the one and only theos, God. And let me show you monogamous. It's a very unique Greek word. Literally means one and only, one of a kind, literally. One monos of a class, genos, the only of its kind. Menagenes theos. He is the one and only kind of God. He's unique God. Oh, another way to say this is he is the unique God. In fact, I believe some translations translate it that way. He's the unique God. But look at what John does here, masterfully. He... They are so brilliant, you're left with no other uh, ability to understand these works than saying that these, this individual and all the writers in the New Testament, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Nobody's this smart that they could organize these words like they do. Because when you start to break them down, you realize they are spiritual in nature. These words are spirit. I, I want to read this to you again. John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The monogamous theos, the only begotten, the one and only God, but he doesn't end there because he's talking about Yeshua. He's talking about the word. What does he say? So that you're not confused about the one and only God who is in the bosom of the Father. What a declaration. What an explanation of our one God. There is only one God. Yeshua is in the bosom of the Father. He is prostan theon with his Father. They are one and only one. We're going to end here today. Shabbat Shalom.